Consistent self-improvement, everybody. You are now listening to American Gypsy Podcast. I'm your host, Classic, and I'm here with my co-host. Gypsy, and today we have Noah Haley. He is a professional developer, recreational mathematician, and founder of CoreDisc. Welcome to the show, Noah. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And it was Haley. Was it Haley? Haley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Noah Haley. <laughs> <laughs> See, sometimes I ask too early on and then, and then forget and, and then I get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> so apologize about that. That well, that's okay. Welcome to the show. Welcome yeah. to the show. So to get started, I'd like to ask, even for our audience, um, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you live now and how you got into, you know, what did you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the first two are easy because they're both the same. Uh, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was born and raised here, um, and and uh, it's it's a kind of a, a bookish town. Um, this is the the hometown of Thomas Jefferson, and we don't let anybody forget that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and yeah, so it's 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 kind of a, it's kind of a weird place. It's a university town. Um, uh, I grew up and, and just had a kind of natural facility for, for mathematics. And so I just sort of leaned in that direction. Um, is that what your, um, sorry, uh, your degree is on math or development, which, um, I call what I got the mad scientist degree. So I went to UVA in the engineering department, uh, and, UVA, they have a program um, in in the sort of College of Arts and Sciences called the Eccles Program, which is sort of their honors thing, which has its own degree attached to it. You can get an Eccles degree, and that's if you get 120 hours accumulated, they'll just graduate you. You don't have to have any concentration at all mm -hmm. if you don't want one. Um, they have another program called the Rodman program for the engineering and there's no Rodman degree, but there is an engineering science degree and you're not allowed to just wander around and take classes that look interesting. But my advisor thought I was pretty bright and was willing to sign off on whatever I wanted to do. So I just did that. I just wandered around and took classes. So what defines the engineering science degree is basically what your electives are. And so my electives in science were uh, genetics and relativity and my electives in lab work was uh, robotics and radiation detection. So after that highly practical course of, <laughs> of study, uh, I got a fellowship to do a year in grad school in the closing down nuclear engineering department um, and wound up, I, I averaged uh, slightly more than one math class per semester uh, while I was attending UVA and, and wound up taking several classes in the nuclear department uh, because the professors were just more interesting than most of the other professors. Uh, then I got out and got into programming because i got out in 2000 it was the peak of the boom and needed a job mm -hmm. uh, and so then i started studying uh the the papers you know computers are actually 
uh, a mathematical idea that we happen to be able to physically build. Um, a lot of math was was building towards the idea of coming up with uh, what back in like the 19th century was termed mechanical solutions. That would be problems that you could you could build a machine, what we now call an algorithm, that you could you could create a sort of recipe that would solve any kind of problem like that. Uh, and problems that people thought would be amenable to that had been discovered in the 19th century to, to be impossible. Um, you might be familiar with sort of the quadratic equation. That's a pretty common one that lots of people learn in middle school or high school. Uh, there's a, there are two more formulas like that for third power and fourth power polynomials. But it turns out that not only is there no formula like that for fifth power polynomials, there can't be any formula like that for fifth or higher power polynomials um, because it's, it's actually impossible for such a formula to exist and work. Um, so math, math had sort of done all these things where it figured out these, these ways to solve these problems over the last few centuries and then thought that uh, they'd be able to conquer what integer mathematics, basically the kind of math we teach to, to like kindergartners, first graders, you know, one plus one equals what, you know, and, and the answer is always an integer, the inputs are integers and so on. Um, and it was believed that there would be some sort of approach that would solve any of these problems. Um, you, you stick one of these things in, the answer comes out. And uh, Alan Turing proved that actually that you can't do that, that 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 problem space, which seems so simple, just arithmetic and integers, is actually so big um, and so complex, complicated. Um, and it turns out that it's actually the restriction to integer answers that, that causes this to happen, um, that in fact, you can't do that. The, the, the no universal solution approach can exist. And he proved that by building a, a mental model of a machine that was a universal solution, this thing that could solve any problem that could be solved. And then he proved that it couldn't solve that set of problems. Um, and, and then other, other machines with those properties were, were developed by other mathematicians. And then, uh, oh, I'm, I'm gonna blank on his name, uh, which is really unforgivable because it's the name of the architecture. Uh, von Neumann, there we go. Uh, John von Neumann actually put together uh, a group of, of people at Princeton um, and basically built uh, physical models of some of these machines. Uh, and, and now we have computers. Okay, so it, it's okay. Yeah, go go ahead. ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, no, because it's it's pretty. It's of course it's pretty technical, and you know I'm still tr I'm keeping up with you slowly and slowly. But it's dealing with you saying solving um an, an, on a mathematic um in a mathematic way with with solving problems, and you're saying um I'm not gonna say I guess more of are you are you meaning more in a 
really more, I guess, in a mathematic way or more like a quantum way in solving a problem. When you say the machine that you kept putting something into and or putting the problem into and it can solve so much and then it just couldn't solve. Like when you're saying the type of problems that you're putting into. So what what Turing figured out was that you could basically hand the machine a problem that said uh, you can't solve me. Um, and, and this, uh, so this gets into something called proof theory. Um, and it, it, uh, another guy named Girdle showed that, uh, sort of there were inconsistency problems with complete proof systems. And basically they figured out ways within arithmetic and this integer mathematics to write down statements like this statement can't be proved to be true. Um, and that statement can't be proved to be true because if you could, then it would be false and the proof would be wrong. Um, but the statement is true because you can't prove that it's true. And, and so it's a true statement that can't be proved to be true. Um, now this might seem like a bit of a, a toy, uh, from a a computer. Yes. Yes. Computing problems. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and we now have sort of a lot of human experience with computers. Like we, we, in, in the 1930s, when he came up with this idea, these ideas might have seemed sort of trivial and something you could sort of work around. But we're aware that computers are really persnickety things that really don't like to get any bits out of whack. And so it turns out that these sorts of unprovability statements pop up all over the place in the course of programming and using computers and lead to, well, sort of everybody's had an experience of a machine getting an input that it was not expecting and turning into something that was wholly unpredictable. Uh, and, and basically uh, that sits at the very foundation of uh, mathematics and reasoning. Um, uh, thanks, and we know that thanks to the work of, of these guys uh, from the early 20th century. Is this in the same bubble of is AI as well? AI, um, it, actually, Turing was one of the first theorizers in that field, and and general AI uh, is is subject to something called the Turing test. Uh, that is the capacity to apparently pass as a human being um and with you know photorealistic cgi uh and the the recent uh, if you've seen those ais that can sort of like write screenplays and things they're getting a lot better at, at that kind of behavior of of simulating actual like human action the the current trend of of AI in the news, um, like, you know, conquering go a few years back, uh, or, or some of these other game AIs, like, uh, I think computers are getting much, much better at poker now, for example. Um, why are that's, hmm? sorry, I didn't mean to, interrupt. I was going to ask, why are they getting better? Like, is it because they're just have computing so much data and just kind of using that to you know to perform the best action or like why are ai's um getting better i guess what 
goes into that? It's, it's a combination of two things. The first one is the fact that the computers are far more powerful than they were five or 10 or 20 years ago. Um, the second one is a technique um, called reinforcement learning that sort of takes advantage of that power. Um, and what it does is it's based on a neural net pattern. And what a neural net does is essentially creates a programming language for the computer that consists of nothing other than a set of numbers. Um, so it's sort of very easy for the computer to write that program because it's just a big table of numbers that it can then compute what the program does. Uh, and so the way reinforcement learning works, um, if you have some sort of game model like poker or chess or go or any other game where the rule set is something that's sort of evaluable by the players actually undertaking actions um, what you do is you sort of build a really stupid ai and you put it in a harness that um instead of trying to evaluate the game position and produce its best guess about what the next move is. What it instead with a harness does is it sort of computes every possible next move and asks the stupid AI what the best, you know, outcome of the next move would be. And then, and then sort of does that instead. And so because it's sort of one move close to the end, it's a little bit smarter than the stupid AI that you plugged into it. Um, and then what you do is you get a brand new AI, uh, which can just be a copy of the original, and you do a training session where you have the computer basically learn how to rewrite the numbers in this copy AI so that the behavior of the, of the new program very well approximates the sort of one step deeper program that's a little bit smarter than it. And once you've done that, you now have this sort of dumb plus one AI that is as good as your dumb AI if it was just sort of one move smarter than itself. So then you plug your, you know, plus one AI into the harness and train yourself up another copy that's as smart as this plus two AI. And what happens if you go through, you know, seven to eight thousand generations is that you wind up with an ai that's that's a lot smarter about the game than we are um so far every single time uh and that's that's what they're doing um and uh it's it's been pretty amazing um you wonder is it smarter about the game or is it cheating <laughs> <laughs> well for poker it might be but we're we're learning new things in in these strategic games from the computers which is is sort of a stunning you know 90s computers couldn't beat human beings you know 1997 ibm builds deep blue specifically to beat the world champion and they do it but you know you have to own that specialty built supercomputer in order to run the program. So, you know, nobody's really losing to Deep Blue. Um, by the 2000s, 
computers have gotten good enough that they are typically better than human grandmasters, but they play the game and evaluate it so differently from us that we don't really learn about chess positions very much from them because they're, they're playing a different kind of game than we are. It's just, they're doing better at it than we are. Um, but then uh, Google's DeepMind comes along and the Leela open source project follows it up um, and starts doing this reinforcement learning AI thing. And suddenly this, this computer that's better than the very best computer programs that, that existed before um, and, and therefore way, way better than the best humans have ever been uh, is now playing with this entirely new set of principles that, that the masters can sort of look at and start learning from. And they learn that positional sacrifices are more important than we used to think they are and that playing to make the game easier for yourself or harder for your opponent actually wins a lot or advancing your rooks pawns are really valuable and so do that um and and within the last year uh the people who sort of built the old kinds of engine at the very highest level there's an open source program called stockfish um came up with Stockfish NNUE, where roughly speaking, uh, instead of sort of coming up with some random stupid AI to plug into your system, you build a really smart, careful AI. You plug that in as the seed of, of the, the thing, and then you start breeding up a neural network that's, that has, that's based on all that tactical knowledge plus sort of its neural network sheen on top. Um, and, and it's even stronger than the pure neural network plays are and, and vastly, vastly stronger than we are. And it has other things like maybe you shouldn't castle so often. It's a whole move and, you know, there's other things you can do with that. Um, and Go is the same way uh, where people were vastly better than Go programs uh, until somewhere around 10 years ago uh, when a breakthrough in technique was discovered that made Go programs basically able to play sort of beginners, uh, but still couldn't pose any sort of meaningful challenge to, to skilled Go players. And then reinforcement learning uh, you know, went, uh, I believe it was five out of six against one of the top players in the world. And we now believe that that, that like game four, whatever it was, game two, I think, uh, where he won is sort of like the last go game humans will win against a computer in history. Like, it's so much better than we are and getting stronger and teaching us new things about the game that we thought we understood after thousands of years of playing it. Um, wow. So I, I, um, we recently took a pause to watch a movie and, uh, the, was it free guy? Mm-hmm. Have, are you familiar with that? Free guy? I'm familiar with that. With yeah. I haven't seen that one, but, uh, I did see the, the ad campaign. Right. He's basically an AI that was, you know, 
kind of woke up out of being an AI and became a player. So, right. Uh, spoiler alert. My bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess to tell you a little bit just about it, um, does that happen? And in, in, is that basically or is that basically what that is? Kind of when, you know, um, a NPC or a, a, P, a program kind of becomes AI accidentally. Uh, well, so we're not aware of that happening. That's, that's a very popular trope. And one of the things I think that's somewhat constraining in humanity's ability to exploit this technology is that there's actually demarcations between things in the, in sort of the mental sphere um, that we learn about from computational mathematics that we're not used to because kind of the only thinking like systems that we have access to in our cultures and, and myths and so on are people. So we're just like, well, you know, it's behaving, we anthropomorphize everything. It's like, you know, it's, it's behaving with a mind of its own. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a vacuum cleaner. It's, it's not behaving with a mind of its own. <laughs> there ain't no mind there. You know, it's just, there's a ball bearing that's loose or something like that. Um, and so what these, what these things are doing um, is essentially building up incredibly sophisticated uh, uh, probability models and, and basically playing this gigantic theoretical pachinko machine that, that is sort of very carefully placed paddles and stuff inside it so that wherever you drop the thing at the top, it always lands in one of the good places and never lands in one of the bad places. Um, and that's also what what we're doing as human decision makers when we decide to swerve or break when something jumps out in front of our car or uh, when when something else happens uh, in say a game of chess and we decide whether we want to you know push this pawn or that piece um, we're making those decisions too. Uh, but that's all we're doing. We're just making that decision in that space. It's just that we can't, we, we've never had the capacity previously to separate out the ability to make that sort of decision from a machine. Only people could make decisions like that. Um, and so there's sort of like the apocryphal story of, like a farmer and an early industrial farmer getting a tractor and like running out of gas and then like beating the tractor to get it to keep going. Because, you know, if their donkey doesn't want to keep moving, well, you know, you hit it a little bit and get it to keep moving. <laughs> right. And, and in a culture where you're using life to do physical labor, sure. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of different motives that, that can get a living animal to do something from, you know, 
care, training, food, reward, all sorts of different things. But a machine, you got to know where the switch is. You got to know where the power supply is. You got to line up the pieces. And then once you've lined up the pieces, the thing happens. And if you line up the pieces wrong, something other than the thing happens. Um, and what computational math and computer technology show us is that for decision-making and communication and other things that are deeply, deeply human, cultural, even spiritual, um, that also now applies. We can measure uh, communication, which is how we can talk to each other on this digital platform. Um, the signals that I produce are measured, the measurements are transmitted to you and then reconstituted on your screen. Um, and so that opens up sort of entirely new avenues for things to exist, which we're really not competent right now to, to sort of absorb and think about rationally. Um, and, and you can see this sort of all over the place. You know, you're talking about free guy, you talk about CGI sort of taking over movie making. Um, yeah. I have, I have a lot of siblings, some of whom are a lot younger than I am. And so they're, they're much more used to the modern style of, of cinema. Um, but you can show them some amazing things from like, uh, the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood is like the 1930s or something that that came out. And it's, it's a stunning film, not least because human beings are doing these ridiculously acrobatic stunts all the time. Um, and it looks better than Marvel movies where they're doing much more insanely acrobatic stunts, but it's not human beings doing them. It's, it's, you know, a computer CGI. program drawing a cartoon that looks a lot like a human being, but doesn't look like your eyes can still tell the difference. Right. Um, Sometimes you even ask, why did they do that? <laughs> right. <laughs> it looks nothing like, you know, the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's doesn't even look remarkably like a human being. Right. Um, and then that it's real bad. I, I wanted to go back and ask um, your developer. Um, when did you get into developing? Uh, well, so software developer, basically. Yeah, software. Um, She's a developer uh, as well. Okay. Well, so basically, you know, 2000, uh, got out of school, needed a job, local uh, local company that was kind of pioneering in social gaming, but didn't know what they had. So they they went off in a direction that didn't generate any revenue, and, and then they went bankrupt. Uh, but their CTO was in the games club that I was the president of at, uh, at UVA. And so I'd been kicking his ass, you know, at board games for a few years. And, and he was like, you're real smart. We're hiring, come on down. So I went on down. Uh, I got the kind of the usual programmer interview of here's a couple of logic problems. How do you deal with those? I'm good at math. I did great at those. Yeah. So, um, so I got in and, uh, and then they were like, well, this is, this is the language we use here. Here's the book. Uh, there's a project get to work. And What's so, 
I read the book and started working on the project uh, and made a whole bunch of different mistakes along the way, but eventually created um, a system that they had multiple web logs. Um, and, and so I created a parsing system that would uh, parse down the, the key page views and, and sort of player information of, of hitting those page views and also sync up the logs across the, the web servers. So by the time I left, I think we had six different web servers. Um, so a player session could, could dance among the web servers and the timestamps didn't necessarily sync up well. And so what you need to do was sort of run through the logs and identify each first player action and then second player action because the logs had notes to that effect. And so you could sync up uh, player player sequences through the, the site. And then once you do that, um, I built another program that uh, put together player models, which basically treated the site like a pachinko machine where players would just sort of randomly bounce around and then look at uh, the, the paths that players usually progress through. Um, and that's, that's how I found out uh, pretty much the week before they, they had to not fully declare bankruptcy, but lay virtually everybody off uh, was that their, their primary dr revenue driver plan um, was associated with people leaving the site and never coming back again. So, so it was the, the it was the black hole of the site was the part that they were making money on. So, what language did you start with, and what are you using now? Uh, so they they were a Perl shop. Um, okay. The first programming language I was ever instructed in was Logo in grade school, um, and I used Logo actually to create the logo for my company. Um, uh, I just found a web page with an interpreter online and and bounced around until I uh, wrote a little sort of SpyRaft program that, that broke that. Um, in high school, I studied uh, Pascal and then C, and then in college, I did some C++, uh, C, and Python. Um, and I've been developing in shell uh some c mostly pearl shops around here some python use some ruby uh, and uh and also dang it i'm bad with names this is my <laughs> big problem um but the lisp for the jvm uh closure mm. uh okay uh, so tell us a little bit about core disk and what the company does uh, sure. Yeah. So core disk is uh, basically a holder for the IP of coordinated discovery markets, thus core disk, uh, which is my notion for a better way to operate price discovery in financial marketplaces. Um, and so I'm working to get that, that mechanism patented. Um, there's also an uh, sort of 
outside the United States open source project, um, just to get it out and, and off the ground. Uh, and I am producing materials to, to advertise this information and, and also doing consulting uh, with people to, to try to get projects using this technology into, into use. Um, and I can go into detail of what that technology, how, how the technology works or yeah, what its effects are probably going to be or, um, sure. So the basic notion is again, what I was talking about earlier, it's a splitting up of what, what we ordinarily think of as a unified thing. So in financial marketplaces, it's basically about buying and selling things and, and price is an emergent property. Uh, as a result of lots of people buying and lots of people selling something, uh, frequently notionally, the the sort of ownership is transacted electronically or futures are transacted. So agreements to trade something in the future are actually what's being brooded back and forth in order to determine where prices are. Um, if you do that and keep records which you publish, that's what the market ticker is all about, then people will be able to look at that record and make decisions for themselves that will cause the entire market to converge towards where the price is, uh, the level at which supply and demand are equivalent to one another. Um, however, what that's doing is conflating the risks and knowledge uh, into sort of one basket along with the the notional uh, uh, concept of actually moving physical goods around. And so if we split that up, there's actually a better arrangement. And so in my system, um, there's a forecasting market, which attempts to work out not merely where prices are, but the future pattern where prices are heading. And then a sort of trading clearinghouse where physical trades can be conducted at the prices that the forecasting market has, has marked out. And those trades generate revenue um, because commissions are charged on those trades, which can then, because we can measure how much information is in things, that, that revenue can be distributed among the people in the forecasting market based on exactly how useful they actually were to the marketplace in general. So, you now I was going to ask, uh, what's, well, I didn't mean, if you were, weren't finished, you can continue. And oh, okay. Yeah. So, what this does is it creates a market that is more efficient in the engineering sense um, because rather than having to sort of deal with the noise and the expense, even notionally, of moving contracts back and forth we're sort of first conducting negotiations in a purely information space, which is much less expensive. And then taking that sort of pre-negotiated positions and allowing everybody to gain access to this best possible price um, at, at this sort of higher level. I guess I was going to ask, uh, I guess a couple of questions kind of one, one I was, uh, what what's your view on cryptocurrency, and is this uh, is cryptocurrency implemented in this type of um, 
thing as well and also nft is this something that even you know when it comes to uh, creating smart contracts and things like that that's um kind of implemented into so i have several sort of irons and fire projects in early stage a couple of them are crypto related um crypto is essentially uh, a choice of implementation. It's not necessary um, for this. This is this is more about uh, uh, a, a different part of the financial system. I was on a podcast, which was sort of a debate between me and a couple of crypto guys, uh, where I basically point out that crypto, as impressive a technology as it is, is focused on solving. Um, a, a real problem that isn't the real problem, if you will. Uh, so crypto is, is basically focused on creating trustable, stable currencies for the most part, um, is, is what the technology's end stage is actually gold out as. Um, but trustable, stable currencies are generatable um, through physical mechanisms, if you care to have one of those things, um, you know, that the, the gold standard guys have been banging this drum for, you know, the better part of a century now. So that's, that's a thing that you could do. Um, currency systems, fortunately or unfortunately, are actually intrinsically political social animals. Um, and if a society chooses to have a currency which is worthless, that doesn't necessarily doom that society. Uh, Sparta, which is one of the most stable and successful societies in the ancient world, intentionally used iron as their currency, um, basically so that they wouldn't trade with outsiders and pollute their culture uh, with, with new ideas. And that's what allowed their culture to remain stable. Of course, their culture was also a kind of horrific death cult. And so that stability ultimately wound up being suicidal. Uh, but the, the, the plain fact is a stably valuable currency is only actually necessary to a society that is engaging in trade and wants and needs to engage in trade. And many, many societies uh, haven't needed to engage in trade. And many, many societies haven't wanted to engage in trade. Now, we're living in societies these days that almost all do have both of those desires and needs. And so uh, stabilizing the currency would be valuable for us. But Currency or money systems in general is just a way of measuring financial information. It's basically a yardstick. It's not the, the end all. And unfortunately, the deeper problem that I've identified is that this existing trading market structure that we're using depends for its sort of fairness and operational constraint structure this notion that the marketplace can outspeed the market participants. Uh, you ever heard of sort of greed fear? The, the notion, okay, so the notion is that traders need to be driven by greed and fear. You know, greed gets them into the market, 
because they want to make money, fear sort of keeps them honest um, so that they don't like steal money, basically. Um, what computers and computer speeds in communication and so on do is that they basically diminish and in some cases eliminate the fear. Um, and so what happens then is that the market becomes much more noisy, which makes it much more lucrative for the people operating it. Um, and that's not just sort of the formal operators in the marketplace. It's also the, the traders that are sort of in the trenches. Um, and while that's not an individual thing, it's collective group behavior. So we see this thing over the last one to two generations of the computerization of the financial system where finance is playing a larger and larger role in the human economy. Um, and markets are getting less and less stable. That's not because humans have become uniquely evil um, or, that, or that everybody engaged in the financial system is some sort of sociopath bent on destruction of the world or something like that. It's that the algorithm that we're using can't actually produce good outcomes and even if they were all saints, which they're a lot closer to the, the sociopath angle than the saint end of things, I'm afraid, um, it still wouldn't work because the algorithm's broken. Um, and so we can either generate new algorithms that can support the technology that we have, or we can abandon the technology that we have. And I. I can't imagine a scenario where technology, <laughs> right? Yes, where where people are willing to give up the technology, particularly if if the line is like having a bank account. Like, if you want to have a bank account, then you have to live like an Amish person. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be tough. We're in downtown LA. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You guys, you guys are not giving up technology for any reason. It'll be tough. You know, we've had some vacations maybe without some technology, but it'll be very tough to navigate Los Angeles without technology alone. So, yeah. Until then. Uh, until the right. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, so, so the crypto um, and NFT, I, I also had a, a conversation with a guy who was around my age who wanted sort of a a lay explanation of NFT. NFT, again, there's a lot of potential there, um, but a lot of the existing plays are pretty transparently Ponzi schemes. And, and some of those Ponzi schemes have even blown up already. So it's, it's not like I'm telling tales out of school or anything. Um, we just recently read an article about this guy who... Um, lost like 34 million is it million or billion i think it's think million, it million. Yeah. um dollars because there was an error in the nft and the i guess when i in the smart contract when i read into it it's basically it couldn't handle what is that they didn't anticipate i guess multiple minting in the same transaction i'm like that's a basic thing so, and it, this is not like a small company it's like funded by you know uh, well, if you're if you're losing thirty four million dollars, right? Exactly. You need to have thirty four million dollars <laughs> to lose. That's so, yeah. 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 
Um, and, and basically well, was locked away into escrow. Basically, that's what happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's that's the that's the foundational difficulty. Um, we essentially know because the mathematical proofs of this are the foundation of computer technology in the first place. That programming is is effectively the hardest thing to do that we will ever do. Um, because nothing can be harder than it. Um, there's a lot of edge cases that run up against these impossible problems. And when you get into programming, you discover, like I was saying earlier, it's not just these sort of toy problems of this statement can't be proved. It's, it's all over the place. It's like, well, does this, does this program do what I think it does? Well, I, I don't know. There's, there's no guaranteed way for a general program to figure out the answer to that question. And that's the answer, that's the question people want the answer for. Um, so that aspect of, of NFTs and, and the blockchains of basically saying, well, you know, computers can just do stuff for us. So let's just sort of create this trustable computer that will do stuff for us. We can't program computers now like, why would we be able to suddenly program this much more complicated computer just because it's on a blockchain? Um, so where I like to focus actually is um, creating sort of sub-computational systems, things that are simple enough that you actually can fully determine whether or not they work. Um, and, and also operating at the strategic game theory level, uh, which offers a lot of opportunities to find situations where um, you can create mutually reinforcing incentive systems. So, so people, you know, sort of the, one of the things you worry about is people trying to break the game for their own benefit. But if you can create a strategic situation of, of self-reinforcement, then people breaking the game for their own benefit is benefiting the game. So then you're, you're fine. It's like, okay, go ahead, you know, do spurg out, nerd out, whatever it is, figure out how to do the best possible. The better you're doing, the better the game's doing. So uh, that, that to me is a stronger approach, but it, it requires a very different mindset um, and I, I can't take a lot of credit for having attained this mindset because it, it kind of happened to me by accident while I was trying to solve this problem for fun. So what is one of your favorite games? Um, in terms of like board games to play, uh, I guess I enjoy Titan. I'm not good at it. Uh, and I also like the 18xx train games. Um, they, there's a whole family of these sort of historical simulation uh, uh, games that involve trying to build up companies and lay, lay track uh, during the 1800s um, that, that are a lot of fun. Um, I, I know how to play chess and go in terms of relative human ability. I'm better at chess than I am at go, but I, I kind of suck at both of them. So like it's um, my, my interest in those games is mostly in 
in like what AI does for them. Um, and I'm I'm a very good Settlers of Catan player, uh, which unfortunately means that I don't actually like playing it very much anymore uh, because sadly being the game's less fun, the better you are at it. So uh, that. I can agree with that. You get a little more competitive. <laughs> yeah. So game- well, yeah, uh, the, the games club that I was talking about, um, three or four of the first national champions of the, like the first five national champions all came out of our games club because we started playing in like the mid nineties. One of our members traveled the world and it brought us a copy when it was just came out in Germany. Uh, so we sort of got a head start on the rest of the country over here anyway. Um, and by like 1998, um, I'd be sitting at a table with, you know, three other people who all also went on to win a national championship. And, and you talk about competitive, um, like the, 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 the cutting, like as soon as we'd rolled up for who went first, it was already like the knives were out. Like, it, 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 it. Yeah. like we could look at the board. We knew what we were going to do. We knew who was who had the advantage based on on the turn order, and and we already knew like what we were going to start planning on on how to do stuff. So yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> So game theory kind of seems to be the heart of everything you do. What is it about it that fascinates you? Um, well, I think I think the most interesting thing about game theory is that, again, it extends mathematics to a realm that we don't ordinarily think of as being something that's math mathematicizable, if you will. Uh, and, and the insights that we gain from looking at these things mathematically have real world consequences. Um, so as an example, one of the existing debates in, in biological genetics is like evolutionary psychology and, uh, group selection. Um, and the idea, like the roots of altruism, where, where would cooperation even come from in a Darwinistic competitive dog eat dog, you know, world, um, and sophisticated genetic arguments exist for how a species could benefit itself by being nice to other members of its species and so on. Um, but in game theory, uh, we can examine certain strategic situations in which if this, if this situation exists, then altruistic or apparently altruistic cooperation becomes an ideal strategy. Uh, and so the existence of, of these strategic situations, which are potentially highly general and could have existed thousands or billions of times in the, in the history of the earth um, could allow altruism to simply be produced as a, as an unexploitable genetic, uh, uh, you know, strategy completely irrespective of group selection or, or species, you know, psychology or, or other things. Now those things could also exist. Um, but 
situations where certain kinds of cooperation or competition um, or, or even just, like I said, altruistic behavior uh, actually is, is individually beneficial um, can sort of become this, this kind of new insight to seeing the world. Uh, and it's, I mean, how interesting is that to, to gain new true insights into, into the universe? Like there's, sure, there's sort of an infinite number of those, like the, the universe is a big, exciting place and we're, we're tiny, but, um, you know, having an avenue that, that sort of, you know, serves them up on a platter, uh, is, is, is very cool. Well, before we get ready to close it out, is there anything you um, wanted to leave the audience with uh, and let them know where they can find you? Um, yeah, sure. So there's a website, uh, cordisc.com. Uh, that's C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C uh, that you can learn more about Coordinated Discovery Markets and, and some about me, or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Noah Healy, N-O-A-H-A-G-A-L-Y. Um and uh, yeah, be happy to have you. Just just last week, actually, uh, I had a blockchain developer connect mm-hmm. up with me on LinkedIn out of nowhere, and uh, he's reading my white paper now. And maybe maybe he'll be another iron in the fire in a month or two. So nice. Okay. Interesting. Well, well, it's great having you. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate your time. Yeah. You bet. And the information. I learned a lot as well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We'd like to thank um, our listeners, uh, thank our viewers, thank our donators, supporters, um, subscribers. You can find the podcast at AmericanGypsy.com and you can find consistent self improvement merch at LuanLee.com. And we have music. I also have some cello music, some instrumentals, and, you know, just some. Um, vocal things as well at classic k-l-a-c-c-i-k carpenter c-a-r-p-e-n-t-a that's on spotify itunes title and youtube and more um thank you again to everyone consistent self-improvement and peace, peace.